Here, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the beautiful day you've given us, Lord. You are worthy to be praised. And Lord, you're worthy to be listened to. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds to you. And Lord, may it be you speaking. Your Holy Spirit speaking to us and into our lives, Lord. And we just lift this time to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, as I, 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 of course, we all have different age, age range in this, in this room. So this question might be a little bit easier for some of us, and some of us might be a little more difficult. But how many of you remember your elementary school years? All right, so you guys have some good memories. I guess, you know, by answering that, asking that question, those who were not able to raise their hands, maybe I, don't, I didn't mean to date you or anything like that. But I remember the elementary school years in elementary school, and one of my most favorite parts about elementary school, and I don't know if they do this now, some of you can tell me, my favorite part about elementary school was show and tell. Any of you remember show and tell? Do they still do show and tell? I don't think they do it anymore, right? That was my most favorite part about school is when we can do show and tell. For some of you who don't know what that is, that means when the students will have a designated day or time in class period where they can bring something from home to share. Usually it's some kind of like their favorite toy, stuffed animal, or whatever it may be. I love show and tell. Even though I didn't always have much to show or tell about, right? I didn't have as many of the, the cool things that, you know, every, everybody got at the time, or at least that was my perception. But I remember there was this one time of show and tell that I brought that I was so proud of. The one thing I brought to show and tell I was so proud of was this pencil case. <laughs> yeah, I know why you're laughing. Pencil case? But this was no ordinary pencil case. It was a blue rectangular pencil case. And it had all these buttons. You pressed one button, and the lid opened. It's amazing. You press another button. You know what happens? The tray on the sides shoots out. You press another button. Yes, there was another button. You press that button. You know what else shoots out? A magnifying glass. What pencil case has a magnifying glass attached to it? You flip it on its... Flip it over. That's right. There's another compartment. You open it. This was technology. In my day, there was no one in that class who had anything like it. It was, I was so proud of this thing. It was the envy of all pencil cases, and I am the one who had it. That was technology back in the day. It didn't run on batteries. It didn't need to be charged. You didn't need a cord for it. You just pressed the button, and it opened, and it was amazing. I was so proud of that thing. But I remember show and tell because back in the day, show and tell time 
was like our Instagram, our TikTok, and our Facebook. That was our version of that. What do you mean by that? For many, oftentimes, that period of time was the only time we had a glimpse of what, was, what life was like for that student outside of school. Right? Unless you went to their like birthday parties or you had some kind of designated play dates and stuff, you really didn't know much about the student, your, your classmate outside of school. But when they brought something to show and tell, it was like a little glimpse of who they were or their life or things like that. Right? So I loved show and tell at the time. But nowadays, of course, times have changed, right? Now we are in perpetual show and tell mode. Right? We are living at a time that we almost feel compelled to share everything about our personal lives. Right? Whatever we're doing, whatever we're eating, all that stuff. Today we're living at a time that's perpetual show and tell. And I remember when I started, you know, uh, my social media history is kind of like a hill. Right? Kind of like a graphing hill. I remember when things started, I started off with the mindset of like, why are people sharing what they're doing? Why do I care what they ate? Why do I care about where they went and stuff? I thought, oh my goodness. But then I started kind of getting, I got my smartphone, and then I started adding stuff. Then I started to get connected with people I haven't seen in years. And then I started getting more involved in church stuff, and like, like majority of my like you know Facebook friends and stuff are like people from old churches and, and current churches and connections and stuff. And so then it became look, it climbed up, where it was almost like every day posting something, I would share about a picture or where I went or who I was with or my kids or or what I was eating and stuff like that. And I became one of them, right? But recently, lately, I, I just don't post much anymore. So it's kind of like going back down. So it's kind of like I rarely kind of post anymore. But why do I share that? It's not about social media. All right, it's not about so and tell. I'm not condemning sharing, right? So we don't, you don't have to feel bad if you do or anything like that. It's not a message about that, so don't worry. But we're going to look at a passage today that I believe will challenge us and perhaps in different ways than it did at the time of Jesus. I think it's going to challenge us in different ways because we truly live in a perpetual time of show and tell. Where we're always compelled to show and tell something that we're doing. Something that's happening to us. And I think, I, I think perhaps that God is going to speak to us in ways that are maybe, maybe unique from when even at the moment when Jesus is speaking to the people. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Now if you remember, last week we saw Jesus challenged by his critics. Right? We saw the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They challenged Jesus. And we saw how, I'm, and I'm sure that they thought that they had Jesus beat. They had a formula. They had these questions that they were going to challenge Jesus. And I'm sure they thought, this time we got him. We're going to catch him. 
were going to defeat him. And of course, we saw that Jesus was able to expertly and wisely shut down each of their challenges. So we're going to pick it up from there. Verse 35. And Jesus answering began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is a son of, God, a son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. So here Jesus flips the table and challenges the Pharisees with his own question. And here Jesus refers to Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is written from the perspective of the Lord God addressing or speaking of his anointed king. Right? Not addressing, but he's speaking of his anointed king, the future Messiah king. And it's interesting if you read the psalm that this Messiah king will be a conquering king. A ruling over the nations. This king will be ruling over the nations. But he's also a priestly king. He'll fulfill this role of a priestly king. Now many throughout the history have tried to fulfill this role of both spiritual or religious leader and political ruler, right? We've seen throughout history, if you do a lot of like church history and medieval history, that's where a lot of uh, corruption happened when the church, the Catholic church, the Roman church began to be involved in politics at times too, right? But throughout a lot of history, you've seen individuals who try to fill this role of spiritual leader and political ruler. And how has that often gone? Not so well. Many times, if not most, if not almost all the time, when someone has tried to fulfill this role of spiritual leader and political ruler, a lot of times that's when corruption happens. We see that a lot. And we certainly see it today in our political arena, right? It is very difficult for somebody, and I'll say for, for someone who says is a professing Christian, to get involved in politics, right? It's very difficult to maintain both your, your faith as well as taking a political office. It's difficult because you're representing a vast number of people who don't share your beliefs, And the political realm, right, what goes on behind the scenes, some of us understand and realize there's stuff goes on behind the scenes that is pretty shady and corrupt. And it's very difficult for people to get into politics. But we want to pray for those people, right? We want to pray for anyone, believer, we want Christians in the political realm. But we have to really pray for them. Because it's very difficult to maintain both positions of both political leadership, and maintaining their faith. Anyways, that's a side note, but I wanted to kind of picture this grasp of what Jesus is citing, referring to in Psalm 110, is that this picture of the Messiah King will be a ruling king, but also a priestly king. And so when Jesus, he asked the Pharisees, 
It refers to this psalm. And he asks them, whose son is the Messiah? Their response is, the son of David. That was known, a known reference and title of the coming Messiah would be the son of David from the Davidic line. So Jesus follows up and says, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord God saying of the Messiah King, right? So David saying, so Jesus points out to the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. So Jesus, by saying, catching them. So the Pharisees are caught. How is it that David refers to the Messiah King as Lord, not like Lord God, but Lord in terms of being subject over him, while he is the descendant, right? Can you imagine like, you know, in the scenario when you're a father and you have a child, right? The father doesn't, doesn't speak of the child as a, as a designation of honor, right? It's the reverse, So he stumps the Pharisees because they can't answer, they don't have an answer to that question. So Jesus reveals their lack of understanding of who is the Messiah. Once again, Jesus turns the tables, has his own mic drop moment, and stumps them. It goes on in verse 38. And in teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So here at this point, Jesus is now, so the Pharisees and stuff, they gather together, They try to catch Jesus. They couldn't stump him. And so there's silence. They don't ask any more questions. And so now Jesus is speaking to the people and to the disciples. And here he warns them of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now it's interesting in Matthew's account, Jesus acknowledges that that what they may teach is correct. So if they teach from the scriptures, what they have to say is correct. But he warns them, don't follow their example. It's interesting, in Matthew's account, he says that. They may teach something correct, but don't follow their example of what they do. I think this is a big problem throughout church history, but particularly today. How many people have walked away from church or closed the door on Christianity because they've had bad experiences with Christians or church leaders? Right? I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, know somebody who does not want to be a Christian, does not want to believe in Jesus, doesn't want to go to church because they look at the leaders or they look at people who say they're Christians And they say, if that's what you do, I don't want anything to do with what you teach or what you learn from. And it was interesting that Jesus warns the people. It's like, look, listen to what they, where they're getting it from, but don't follow their example. 
I think that's a very important thing that I want to communicate to you all. Don't do what I do. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I was saying. I want you to be able to separate the teaching of God's word, the message of God's word, from the individual's. I mentioned before about I don't look at political figures to be my spiritual leaders, whether they're Christian or not, right? Even pastors that I admire, I recognize they are just people. It's the word of God that I am held accountable to. So even if you see whether it's a pastor or a minister or just a Christian or somebody who professes the faith, Don't judge the message based on the messenger alone. Right? And Jesus warns the people that. And here in context, he's looking and he he describes, he warns them about the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does he warn them about? And summarize his warning, status. He warns them about the need for status. You look at what he's He warns them about, talking about the scribes. He says, he warns them, they want to be seen. They want to be admired. They want to be honored. And they want to be flattered. See these scribes? They love walking around in these long robes. Jesus refers to these long robes. These long robes was reserved for people of status, persons of rank, right? They delight to be greeted in a certain way, be greeted with titles of honor. They take their seat in the VIP section. And I'm sure they like to sit in the prominent positions in banquets, So what he's warning them is about this need for status. They love the attention. They seek the attention. They want to be addressed with words of honor. They want to sit in the positions of honor, the VIP sections. Being given places of honor and distinction certainly can be nice, right? Have you ever had that privilege, opportunity? Be sit in the VIP section or first class or be given the title of doctor, right? Sometimes that could feel good. I mentioned before, you know, don't call me reverend because if I, for some reason that word reverend I associate as older, older male. So I don't want to date myself, you know. But Jesus is warning them about this is what they desire and they seek after. And Jesus mentions two specific effects of such pride. He says that they devour widows' houses and offer long prayers for appearance sake. Now, we don't know specifically what Jesus is referring to when he says they devour widows' houses. But I think we can assume he's implying or referring to how they may take advantage of the widows in some fashion, some way. They prey on the disadvantaged and the vulnerable. 
All right, so it seems to be some kind of reference of, of this, uh, taking advantage of these widows who are vulnerable and a disadvantage. And then perhaps in some way they offer these long, par- uh, long prayers for the sake of appearance. Perhaps these two things are, are uh, related. Perhaps they create this appearance of righteousness only to cover up their unrighteousness. So they offer these long prayers, but in reality... They're taking advantage of people. And, you know, this, this idea mentioned of long prayer is kind of, I, I can relate to this in some way in that um, there are times when I'm asked to pray, like, over a group of people or for a group of people because I'm a pastor, right? If they know you're a pastor, oh, you're a pastor. Will you pray for us, you know? And I got to admit, there's a lot of, I, I battle with this pressure, of sounding like a pastor. Like, I have to pray like a pastor. So I have to use these certain words, certain volume, as if there's some kind of special power in my prayer, you know? And I always have to wrestle with, okay, you know, God, <laughs> just help me to just pray honestly. And I'll have to pray as if I had to sound like a pastor. You know what I mean? But I know that the temptation when you're in front of people to offer these long prayers. I've been around all different kinds of pastors. And I got to admit, there's been some prayers that I fell asleep on because they're so long. So long and using these words that I don't know what they mean. And I've never heard you talk this way. All those things like that. So if I pray in a way that you're like, Pastor Mike, you don't talk like this. I'm trying. Okay, I'm trying. But Jesus warns the people about those, about those who desire to be seen, to be admired, to be honored and flattered. He says, beware, don't follow their example. He goes on, and he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. So here the scene, Jesus is still at the temple. And he's observing people putting their money, their coins into the treasury. And he notices how the people are putting in. Particularly, he's noticing how the wealthy are putting their money into the treasury. And then he notices a poor widow who puts in these two small coins that that really amount to a fraction of a cent. So he sees these two pictures. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So Jesus calls over the disciples for another teachable moment. And Jesus declares the widow put more into the treasury than all the others who put their money into the treasury. All the wealthy gave out of what? Their surplus, their wealth, what they had. 
But the widow gave out of her poverty from all that she had to live off of. Now, it's kind of interesting that this is the second time in the last few messages that we've seen Jesus in his teaching mention currency or money. If you remember the parable of the talents. However, in both instances that Jesus refers to money in some fashion, the actual dollar amount is not the focus. Right? The amount of money isn't the focus or what was honored. If you remember the parable of the talents, right? The owner praised the faithful servants for their faithfulness, for the work. Even though the one with the five and the one with the two talents, even though at the sum of it all, they had a very disproportionate amount of money, right? One had more than the other. They were both honored by the master for their faithfulness. And here we see a similar situation, right? The scenario involves money, but the focus isn't about the amount. Here Jesus acknowledges and praises the widow who gave more in value even though it was drastically less than the the wealthy gave. So you think about what's the connection in all this, this thread, and from what Jesus warned the people of and what he saw with this widow. What's the connection here? First, let's notice what Jesus observed while watching the people give to the treasury. What did he observe? He noticed how. How the wealthy gave. I wonder perhaps how they gave is to let people know, look how much I'm giving. Look, look, look at me, man. I need buckets to bring my money in. Listen to all the change that's coming in to this treasury. Perhaps that's it. I don't know. But the thing is that, that what Jesus points out, he saw is how. Contrast that, and then here is this widow who gave fractions of assent. The second thing Jesus mentions widows in both teachings, right? Jesus mentions both widows or widows in both of them. Jesus pointed out how the widows can be victimized, taken advantage of by the scribes. And in the second teaching, Jesus points out that the widow's willingness to sacrifice and to give God out of her poverty. You see the contrast in the two situations. Those who are supposed to be righteous was taking advantage of the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, and they're doing it for their own gain. While here is one who was vulnerable and poor, yet giving all she had to God. You see the the picture here that Jesus warned about and then what Jesus observed with the wealthy and this widow? So you think, well, what are we to take away from this passage? Well, here's what I want to start by saying what I don't believe the point of this passage is. This passage is not about tithing. It's kind of interesting. This was brought up this morning in CE, and I had this written down already, but it's kind of interesting, this idea of tithing. This passage is not about tithing. It's not about the amount we put in the offering box. It's not about the dollar amount that we give. 
I was going to share a little bit about my view of tithing. I think it's a bit controversial. Uh, many may not agree. I'm sure in this room we might have agreement. There's not a consensus about the topic of tithing for Christians, for the church. Here's my belief and stance. I don't know if this is going to make waves or not. But I do not believe Christians are bound by the tithing amount. I don't see it in the New Testament. Some of you might think, hmm, now I feel better. (laughs) However, we are not freed from giving either. We're not freed from the principle of giving either. If you take the Jews giving tithing according to the law and to Christians giving offering or whatever percentage to the church, it's not a clean parallel picture. It's not a parallel. You look at the early church. When they gave, they were giving out of to meet the needs of the community of believers, the community of believers, and to support the ministers of the gospel. So when the church community came together and gave together, it was to support the church community, the fellowship, and the ministers of the gospel, the, the workers in Christ. Right? That's the picture of giving we see. So when you look at the teachings of giving for the early church, give generously, sure, right? But give with a cheerful heart. From my perspective, we are not bound. I will not hold you bound in your giving. I don't monitor the amounts. I don't look at the percentage, right? But I will say this. If your conscience leads you to stick with a tithing principle, don't go against your conscience, right? If you struggle to give a 10%, Okay, okay. If you feel like, you know what, I can give more than 10%. Okay, great. If this is your home church and what you give, you know that what you give is the support of the ministry and to support the ministers of the gospel. I say that not as your pastor, but I say that if I'm gone, whomever may serve as ministers of the gospel, what we do as believers in Christ, we give as offering. We are giving in the ministry of God. And that principle of how much we give, I believe is guided by, as the Lord leads you to give. It may be 10%. If that's a standard that you feel good about and if we're comfortable conscience-wise, praise God. Whether it's more or less, I will rely on God and say, God will support and provide for the needs of this church. Let's go back to the parable of the talents. And here in this passage again, the master honored the servants for their faithfulness. Their faithfulness led to serving their master and profit for the master. I am not your master. God is our master. What we give is for God's work to be done. You may not be a leader in the church. Perhaps your offering is an investment for the kingdom of God. Say, God, I don't know what I could do. 
I may not have a role in the leadership or whatever it is. What I give to you, Lord God, may it be an investment for your ministry, for what you do through this church. I also don't think that Jesus' point here is that if you are poor, you must give all you have. I don't think that's the point either. Again, I don't believe the amount that is given is the point in this passage. The main lesson here is the appearance of wealth, but poor in righteousness. As opposed to the appearance of poverty, but rich in righteousness. Let me say that again. I think the main lesson in these two passages that we just read, these two examples, the warning Jesus gave and what he observed at the treasury, the appearance of wealth, but poor in righteousness, as opposed to the appearance of poverty, but rich in righteousness. That's a powerful image that we're given. So what do we do, or what do we give to God? Again, this actually this message isn't about offering, right? It's not about giving or tithing or anything like that. What do we give to God? How do we give to God? And whose interests are we most invested in? See, it's natural to live focused on ourselves. I talked about living in a show and tell world, and we live in a society right now that's very much a show and tell world. And it's difficult, right? It's difficult today living in a show and tell world. It's hard not to be like everybody else. It's hard not to get caught up in those things, right? It's easy to strive for attention from others. Oops. Okay. It's easy. To want to have attention to ourselves. It's interesting that Jesus points out the scribes enjoyed walking around in long robes. That word he used for the long robes is the same word that's used to describe the robes that we would be clothed in when we're with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it's the same robes, okay? But what's interesting is that here are this picture that Jesus is pointing about the scribes. They're seeking all this attention, this, the status for here on earth, but yet will receive greater condemnation later on. And it really points out to me so much how we can really strive for these positions and designations of honor here on earth. But what do we have facing? What will we receive from the Lord in eternity? We get so caught up in the here and now, the attention we can gain for ourselves here. But who are we showing and what are we telling other people? Here's some things to think about. Wrap it with this. Some lessons to think about in our show and tell world that we're living in. First thing, all that we have belongs to God. We have to kind of have that mentality, 
right? In a time when we, we, we're, we're reinforced to, to show everybody what we're doing and what we have and all the good kind of stuff and all these things that's going on in our life, even when we do good things, right? We say, hey, let me post this. Perhaps if I show what I'm doing, other people will be blessed by it. And that could be true. But we all have to admit, when we show good things, sometimes we kind of battle of the attention we get for ourselves, right? Isn't that true? When we post something, we kind of want to see how many likes we get, how many people are commenting what we're showing. We can get self-centered even in the good things we do, right? So how do we live in that kind of society and, and world? And one of the things we have to recognize, we all, all that we have belongs to God. All that we have belongs to God. And we are managers of what God has given us. So it's not ours to claim as our own, but it's God's. The second thing, be faithful with what God has blessed you with. We talked about this from the parable of the talents. Be faithful managers of what God has blessed you with. If we can train ourselves, or if we can be good stewards of what the Lord has blessed us with, We realize we put less ego into what we're doing and more of like, you know what, God, I just want to be faithful to what you have given me. I'm just managing what you have given me, right? The third thing, I say this, be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We need to train ourselves to be discerning, to listen to the Spirit's leading. Whether it's giving an offering, whether it's whatever we're doing, let God show you. Sometimes it may be to give more than what you can or do more than what you can. Maybe he may lead you to give a little less in the moment or time. When you're posting something, you want to post something, perhaps he may show, give you some restraint and say, yeah, you know what, hold off on that. Maybe don't show it. Or maybe do it a little bit differently. What are you showing others? And what are you telling to others? Right? If like, if like your, your social media accounts, if, if God started following you, you know what I mean? Would you post and do the same things? I don't know. If your parents started following you, that's when your social media world just collapses. <laughs> right? God, oh, gosh. There were many times I wanted to post something, but I was like, God, oh, but like three quarters of my followers are church people. They may not be able to, I may not want to say what, or they may, I may not want them to see what I'm really thinking, right? Sometimes we have to train ourselves to be discerning and let God say, look, you know what? What are you really showing people when you do this? When you want to gain attention, is it for yourself? And is it healthy? Is it a healthy representation? What are you telling other people about yourself? The last thing I'll say, or almost the last thing, 
Seek to honor the Lord and let him esteem you. Seek to honor the Lord and let him esteem you. Don't seek after the status. Because when we have the mindset of seeking after the status, it affects what we do and why we do it. Right? I say, let God esteem you. Perhaps God will bring people and honor you for, reward you for what you've done. Maybe that's a blessing. Right? It's okay. If you know you earned a, a doctorate degree and you want to be referred to as doctor, okay. But if you go around and say, well, excuse me, that's doctor. <laughs> Kim. Okay. All right. My mistake. My mistake. But sometimes we can seek after the status and it ends up affecting why we do things and what we do. And it's like a rabbit hole. Right? If we get the attention, can we get too much attention? So we want it and we crave it. So there's the dangers of the worlds we're living in. And with these verses, and again, I promise this is where we end. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I don't believe this is guaranteeing that God will always reward us with earthly treasures and acclaim and glory. I don't think that's the point. But it's to acknowledge the fact that God rewards the humble. He blesses the humble. And in a world that we strive to get all the stuff here and now, the attention, the fame, the titles, the seating, the best seats in the house, all this kind of stuff, know that that is not our reward. That is not our eternal reward. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. and Lord, we can easily get caught up in the attention, the status, the affirmation from others, the flattery, get caught up in being honored by other people, to sit in the best places, to get the best seats. We can get so caught up in that, Lord. But Lord, I pray that we would have the heart of that widow, Lord, that will honor you regardless of what we have, the amount we have. Help us, Lord, to be faithful managers and servants of what you have given us. We thank you, Lord, and give this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.